everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know. We call this podcast Frontier because we believe that we are in between where we were as we were growing up, the tradition, uh, the spiritual tradition and legacy that we inherited, and where we might end up going. We are in this uncertainty yet excitement of discovering what our faith could be. And we're so excited that you're here to join us for that conversation today. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to be talking about COVID-19. There is, of course, a ton that we could be talking about when it comes to COVID-19. But Ryan and I both felt motivated and even that it was necessary that we provide some sort of voice to what COVID looks like on the frontier for us. And for me, as a pastor, being on the inside of some conversations that let me left me feeling dirty, uh, very uncomfortable, and genuinely befuddled at times, I started to talk with Ryan about different things that were going on, and we wanted to share that with you. Ryan, you, you said that you had some experiences, too, that made you uh, want to talk about that today, too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, as a hospice chaplain and someone who primarily, well, entirely ministers to people who are in the end of their lives, you know, 99.8% of whom are 70 or older, um, they've had to deal with this a lot. Honestly, we still have to think about it every day. And I have multiple different kinds of masks in my car and gloves and gowns and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, so it's just something that I have to deal with. And so far, I've not had any problems, knock on wood, of course, but it's changed our entire business. It's changed the way I do my job. I mean, so yes, I've had lots of time and reasons to think about this. And then also, some of the things I've seen and observed in it have been deeply problematic, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, and I think because things are happening so fast right now for us, it might just be good really quickly to give you, if you're listening to this, whenever you're listening to this, kind of a grounding of where we are in the timeline. Of course, we don't know where we're going from this point. When it comes to COVID, we're at the time where states are reopening and they're actually getting to a place where almost all restrictions are relaxed. Uh, depending on the state, of course. Certain states, that's not true. Other states, it's more true than not. Uh, we're starting to see a resurgence, and some of us, uh, myself included, are getting worried that we're going to go back into quarantine. Who knows if that's going to be the case, but we're right there in between the, the reopening of states, and even though we're not going to talk about it, I think it would be helpful based off of some of the things we will talk about this is happening about 10 days or two weeks after George Floyd's murder, and we've watched how Christians have reacted in the midst of all of that, too. And the fact that the ongoing protests are likely to um, affect, you know, COVID is going to be a part of those as well. We don't know how yet, but that's also very much part of the discussion that, you know, part of our discussion today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we thought we'd start off by uh, talking a little bit about how we grew up, but this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. We're not going to do this in three parts. It will have the three-part structure, sort of, 
but we're going to try our best to make sure this stays within one digestible episode. We don't know how long it'll be, but we hope it's something that gives you a flavor for what we're doing here on Frontier Faith, but also really helps you during this COVID time as you try to figure out the frontier. One of the big things that uh, was true for me as I started to grapple with this, I realized how much Christian culture is built around, in America at least, is built around the idea of religious freedom. It is all over the place, isn't it, Ryan? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's it seems to be a central part of American Christianity. And, you know, I grew up in Canada and it looks different, but I would say it's very much in terms of what we're talking about. It's similar enough. But yes, very much so. It seems to be I don't know about the cornerstone, but it's certainly part of the um, central makeup of American Christianity, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we could go into lots of places where it's really difficult for pastors who are trying to show people that Jesus requires action, and the the response is basically what I get from toddlers a lot, which is, <laughs> you can't tell me what to do. Well, and that, you know, Jesus wasn't American, don't tell, but... You yeah, know, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but religious freedom is certainly a... I think it is a cornerstone. You know, it's one of the big things American Christianity has as both something that's just part of our DNA and a challenge to everything that we're trying to do. And I guess I want to start by asking you, Ryan, what do you think of when you hear, we're going to do this as charitably as possible, but what do you think of when you hear religious freedom? Well, so what I think of now when I hear religious freedom is more what I think that probably should be. I think of true freedom for anyone to practice any religion they want to, as long as it's not harming people, you know, in some way, Uh without any kind of interference from, you know, governments or organizations or whatever, you know. Right. And I mean, I think that's probably the definition, except... I think what I often encountered, I never realized this then, but was more of a religious freedom means Christians are free to do whatever they want and others are not. Not so much that like, say, Muslims can't exist or something or can't practice their faith. But when when the kind of Christians I grew up with talk about religious freedom, they mean that the government can't tell Christians what to do and what not to do. Okay. I think I'd push it a little further. I agree 100%, but I'd push a little further because where my mind started going when you started talking about Muslims, it could be anyone, atheists, whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's that when those two things are in conflict, yeah, yeah, Christians are supreme. Right. Well, I mean, Christian rights are supreme. Right. A great example of this is I think in the last year or two, the um, Satanic Temple put a statue of. I don't know if it was Satan or somebody else. They tried to put it at a courthouse or something or right outside one. And they did this not, I don't think these people actually worship Satan. I think they really do this to troll religious conservatives, but yeah, they don't, um, you know, but this, the point was, well, if we have religious freedom and if you can put 10 commandments up places, we should be able to put this up. Right. Yeah. And 
uh, would it surprise you to hear that Christians did not say, oh, you're right. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm not trying to make fun. I'm really not trying to mock or anything like that. But I just thought, you know, it was a good example of what we're talking about, where when we say religious freedom, we don't really mean that in the same way for everybody. Yeah. And we certainly mean like, so I think there are two ways we've talked about already, and we can, of course, return to any of these, but it's that the government can't tell Christians what they can or cannot do. Two, uh, if Christianity or a branch of Christianity is conflict with another religion or another expression, secularism, even though I don't believe that's a thing, uh, that that's something a lot of Christians get hung up on. If those things are in conflict, then Christians win. And third, it's really important to know, because you you use this example of the Ten Commandments, uh, that the government actually has to ensconce <laughs> Christian values into their decisions, into their courthouses. Like, uh-huh. you know, Ten Commandments being in courthouses is a big thing, or it was at some point. It probably still is if it gets challenged, but it's not just freedom, it's like supremacy, is it not? Well, yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from this, I believe, entirely mistaken um, premise that America is a Christian nation, you know, and so for people who argue this way, they say, well, of course, I mean, it usually involves the separation of church and state, you know, and Uh generally speaking, that's a bad thing if you're looking at it this way. You know, again, I won't, we don't have to talk about this in detail, but I would just challenge people who think that to read some of the things that people like Thomas Jefferson wrote about it, you know, James Madison and talking about how it's not a Christian nation and never was intended to be. But anyway, um, (laughs) just about everybody, (laughs) just about everybody, you know, and even, you know, those people were not evangelical Christians for sure. Let's put it that way. Um, Anyway, um, where was I going before I got on that diversion? (laughs) (laughs) It's because Um, it's a Christian nation. Right, right. So there's this idea then that um, the government itself should be run by Christian values and principles as we understand them, which, again, I think gets you into some problematic territory pretty quickly, even if just on a practical sense, right? Because who's Christian values, you know? Yeah. I mean, the Christian values, quote unquote, look so different depending on whether you're talking to you know, depending what region you're in, what denomination you're talking to, what, you know, all those things. And so it, it runs into problems as well, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't help but think about how I think the way most Christians contextualize freedom of religion and the separation of church and state is really just within Christianity. It's not the spectrum of religion in our world, but within Christianity. So they might say, for instance, that you can't have the ten, or you could, you should have the Ten Commandments up in a courthouse, but you can't tell me to go to a Baptist church or a Catholic church. Right, right. That's kind of how it lives out in the way that Christians talk about freedom of religion. And since our world's so different now, it becomes a lot more complicated to really talk about religious freedom uh, in a more holistic sense or a broader sense. And so what I've noticed is just a lot of Christians double down on that notion of those three points that we talked about. You can't tell what Christians what to do 
Uh, if Christians are in conflict with any other belief system, that the Christian belief system wins out. And third, not only does it win out, but it should have supremacy inside of our country. Right, and maybe we already said this, but just to um, just to be clear, I, as Nate just listed those three things, I think he's entirely right. I don't think hardly if anyone who believes these things um, would articulate it that way, or even. I'm not sure everybody knows that this is the place they're operating from. Yeah. Right. I mean, some, right. I think some probably do, but generally speaking, I, I, I think it's more of an instinctual um, uh, reactionary, yeah. if that's the right term kind of thing, you know? Absolutely. And I have this effect on people when I talk, uh, it, it overwhelms some people and I'm not saying I'm good and perfect at this, but it does, happen that I say things so succinctly and so like on the nose sometimes that most people don't know what to do with that. So if you're listening to me and you're like, that sounds right, but I, you know, I've never thought of it that way before. That's okay. Uh, and you can, of course, challenge any of these. I'm okay with that. But those three things are how I observe it to be the case, not necessarily that people are intentionally doing it. I'm actually moving away from intention because I don't think a lot of the things we do are as intentional as we want them to be, or at least as others think they are of us. At least in their starting point, right? I yeah. don't think anybody looks at all this and says, well, I'm going to suppress other religions so that mine can be supreme. You know, no, right. I don't think anybody's doing that. I mean, outside of a very few a wackos, few, yeah. right? Bad people kind of thing. Um, I think it's. I think it's more... Honestly, I believe it's more based on fear than anything else. I think um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of this narrative of religious freedom is the, what's been developed as a way to cope with changing um, societal norms, changing, um, I mean, just in society itself, changing like so much from when a lot of people who have that um, who have this uh, frame of or framework that they work within? It's changed a lot since they were kids or young or even young parents. Like and so fast, right? I mean, right. like in the last thirty years or so, and not just because of technology, but that's a great example. I mean, like it's not just that things have changed; it's that it's been like constant whiplash over and over again. And so I think what often happens is it's hard to deal with that kind of change, especially at that frenetic, always expanding pace, you know. And so I think what often happens then is um, when I say conservative here, I don't mean in a political sense. I just mean in a we have to keep things the way that I'm used to them because I know what to do. I know what to say. I understand the rules, right? Like yeah. I know how to act and I don't anymore. And that brings a lot of fear and anxiety, I think. Yeah. So, so what's one of the stories we tell ourselves when we're afraid that our religious freedoms are being infringed upon, or maybe we're losing them. What's one of the stories we tell ourselves? Well, and so I think one of the narratives that's really developed um, and not just developed, but has become pretty entrenched in the, at least in, you know, our kinds of Christianity that we experienced in the, the psyche, the, I don't even know what it is, like, like we were talking about, the foundation of it, is this idea that in America, um, and I think in Canada too, I can say that, I was there, but certainly 
more here, I think, just because of certain cultural things. But that there's this narrative that Christians are persecuted um, by whether it is progressives or secularists or the state, the government, you know, whatever it is, um, there's this idea that Christians, uh, it didn't used to be this way. It used to, we used to be a good Christian nation, right? And yeah. then all this stuff happened. And now the seculars, the progressives, the liberals, the media, the whoever, the atheists, I don't care, take Marxists. your pick, Marxists, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, whoever it is, they have an agenda against the church and against God. We kind of talked about that in our um, church and culture episode, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what what is often seen is this idea that Christians are being persecuted because these enemies, whoever the, the you know, boogeyman du jour is, <laughs> is trying yeah. to supplant Christianity as the dominant force in culture. Because remember most of these Christians believe that that's what Christianity always has been in America. Yeah. And I think that there's a spectrum here. Uh, Persecution could be outright persecution. I have seen people make that argument uh, unconvincingly, but still make that. And it could, it could go all the way down to just, uh, you know, political backlash about Christian values, supportive political policies or people, or even just, I've seen it with, it doesn't have to be as charged as politics. It could be just simple things like, um, you know, we talked in our church and culture about the nativity set thing of how nativity sets aren't seen anymore. And people say, you know, what happened to our country it used right. to be that Christmas was this time. Everybody said Merry Christmas and so on and so forth. Right. The and, war on Christmas. Yeah. Exactly. And that could be persecution, too. They just they probably wouldn't call that persecution, but some would. It's, it's within the spectrum. Yeah, some yeah. would. Or I think a really great example is uh, prayer in schools in that. Oh, yeah. That used to be a thing, I guess, when our parents were children. It never was in my lifetime. And I remember seeing like they weren't memes because those didn't exist in those days. But this idea of like it was something like asking God to help with our schools. And God says, I'm not allowed in your schools, you know. Um, yeah, and right. I've heard I still hear occasionally people talk about how much of a tragedy it is that school prayer is not a thing, which ignores the fact that nobody says you can't pray in school. <laughs> they yeah, just don't right. sponsor it in the morning, <laughs> you know. Um, Depending on your friends on Facebook and who you're with, if you're with some boomers and people who are a bit older, which I am as a, as a pastor of a congregation, I see those things. I see those things from other pastors. I see them from other people. And just it's it's still there, according to prayer. And I don't see this one as much. But, you know, like the whole currency thing about in God we trust and making sure that's there. Not so much anymore, but that used to be one for sure. Yeah. I still see it every once in a while, but it doesn't get support. So I I mean, because most people don't really care what's on their money anymore. They just want more money. Gosh, talk about (laughs) deeply problematic when you mix God with currency. But yeah, right. Anyway. Well, and we have credit cards more often than we do cash. So, you know, are you going to put those on our credit cards now? It's another way that things have changed so fundamentally, right? Like prayer in right, schools yeah. was such a was such a given in terms of how things worked, and you know, paper currency, whatever it was, like these were just not even thought about because they just were, you know. That has yeah. changed, and so it creates, like we said, a lot of fear and anxiety. And I think, I think also this persecution narrative—it's not just about fear. I think it brings a lot of purpose, you know. Um, so it gives 
um, in some ways, I think it gives people a reason to not just go to church, but really um, be involved in, in like not the local church itself necessarily, but in, in the entire church as like, I think we talked about that too, this idea that we're fighting for Jesus, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Because I guess when you're persecuted, that's what you do, right? You right. fight back and stop the persecution is, I guess, again, I don't think anybody's ever said that in those words, but that I think is what I've observed. Yeah, and what I move to do is recognize because I've been alive long enough now, you know, when I was younger, um, I could roll my eyes at this kind of stuff sometimes. But what I can recognize is that the world is moving quickly. Uh, I mean, if COVID, since we're talking about COVID, my goodness, COVID, it's like every week something new is going on. And I remember there was a three-week period where it was just like, okay, we're still waiting for this thing to kind of de-escalate and yeah, there were horrifying things being said and done, but it was really kind of tame comparatively. Um, and it was such a relief, but generally it's happening so fast that I can now understand the fear in a different way of how things are changing. Like if, if you're a boomer, you grew up in a world that is so radically different. And I read this recently that, uh, you know, you look at your grandparents and over time, people would look at their grandparents and they would say, yeah, it's different than when they were alive, but you would have a lot more in common with your grandparents than you would realize. And if you thought it through, you would you would realize it. You would start to see, oh, yeah, okay, so uh, there's this, that, and the other. Now, grandparents are so far removed, mm. their experience from their grandkids They're actually living in like two different worlds. Well, yeah. I mean, I remember when my grandma was alive, she just died last year, I think. Yeah. Um, I asked her who the Mm. first president she remembered was. You know who she said? Uh Uh-huh. Woodrow Wilson. Oh, wow. I mean, she lived to be almost 100. But I'm just saying like, you know, the first president I remember is as like actually remember is George Bush the first time. So, I mean, there's yeah, quite right. a gap in between her and my experience there. And the like, I tried to explain digital music to her one time and it didn't work. We gave up, you know, she just could not. <laughs> yeah. She said, I just don't get it, you know? Right, right. And it's, it's you don't have to go that extreme like you used to. But now, I mean, I'm looking at the differences between me and my parents and yeah. there's just so much like, the changes have happened so rapidly that I can really, I do try my best to empathize and recognize it's scary because you inherit a world and you think it is the world. And then the more you live, the more you realize, no, that's just your world. And not only that, but your world is being demanded to change and change in really significant ways. Like, no longer carry cash, but carry cards. And that seems kind of foolish to someone like me, but uh, some of the older people in my congregation, they refuse to get cards because cash is their world, you know? Whereas I don't want cash, you know, because then you keep track of it. And honestly, (laughs) maybe it's counterintuitive, but I honestly have a much easier time budgeting my spending if I don't have cash. Because when I have cash, I just spend it on who the I hell knows it. what yep. it is, you know, it's I'm like, why way. do I have 18 bags of candy in my house or whatever? <laughs> um, 
So I, I think it's probably obvious now that Nate and I don't really buy this argument or this narrative of religious persecution. But it, it probably won't surprise you to hear that um, I, and I think Nate would agree, we don't really see this happening in America. Um, and I mean, well, why don't you, why don't you just uh, talk about that for a bit, Nate? Like why, where are the problems with this narrative of religious persecution that we've been talking about? So for me, the biggest problem is that it focuses on um, what I call selfish behavior. And I don't mean it like in the pejorative sense, even though it is pejorative in a way. It's more that it's focused on the self, a philosophical concept of the self. So I'm always, when it comes to freedom and persecution, I'm always concerned about me and my rights and my livelihood, my life, my whatever. And uh, it fits within a lot of the stuff that we discuss on this podcast, but I just started to wonder, I don't even remember if there was a time and what that looked like outside of the general move in my doctorate work. Um, Jesus doesn't seem to talk that way. He doesn't seem to talk in a way where we're supposed to be concerned about our rights and our livelihood. In fact, it's it pretty much seems to be the complete opposite. And so I started to notice this disjoining, this um, juncture that just was missing. You know, they're going over each other. Christians are saying, my rights, my livelihood, my, mine, mine, and yet I'm reading and I'm hearing Jesus talking about no focus on other people. And it just started to make me think a lot more. So that's kind of where I go is rights seem to be very self-centered, selfish in terms of a philosophical perspective that everything is engineered or discussed or talked about or structured around uh, me. Yeah. yeah and, and this idea that, um, well, I have I have two thoughts, but in response to that, I would say that like like you were saying, Jesus doesn't really talk about our religious rights and freedoms, you know. Um, and I think when Jesus says what he says about you know turn the other cheek, give them your coat, um, walk two miles if they make you walk one mile, you know, all these things. Yeah. And Paul says overcome evil with good, right? Um, and I think it's in Peter where they talk about you know letting like bearing up under persecution to basically show God's love to people, or that's my, my very bad paraphrase. But it seems to me that this idea that I see in the gospel yeah. and in, in other parts of Christian yeah, scripture right. is the idea that even if we are being persecuted, the response should not be to fight against that persecution. Yeah. Right. I mean, and by the way, I hate that, too. <laughs> I mean, nobody likes that. Right. Um, like, you know, you hear that and you're like, Jesus, like, what are you talking yeah. about? Right. But that's that's what Jesus does. Jesus stands things on their heads. Jesus changes the game every time he opens his mouth. Every time he does something, he does it the quote unquote wrong way. And so. Yeah, like I don't really buy this idea that we're persecuted as Christians in America. You know, in fact, I think I could argue that we have a very privileged place, you know. Um, but even if we were, like I just, you know, I, I think that like our enemies, if we have them, our enemies are never people. Yeah. At least they're not supposed to be. 
Right. Even if those people declare themselves our enemies, they're still not our enemies, you know? Yes. And yeah. Yeah, I think that's like the, we just cut to the core. Usually in our longer episodes, we kind of dance around it a little bit to to get there. But I think the, the key thing is, is that a lot of people will argue, well, uh, your rights aren't being violated. You're not persecuted. And I just think, even though I really do agree with that, why have that conversation as Christians? Why have that conversation? And I've noticed that conversation a lot more than I would care to admit. The better conversation is, what is Jesus, what is scripture actually calling us to? And it's very unattractive, right? He's calling us, as you just said, to endure persecution for the sake of the person who's persecuting you. Right, right. And And who in the world wants to do that? Yeah, nobody wants to do that, you know? I mean, but like, remember when Jesus said uh, to Peter, don't you know I could call 10,000 angels right now, you know? And I've always wondered if not, I don't think he was necessarily tempted there, but I've wondered if there was a little more to that statement, you know? But regardless where Jesus ends up is, but I'm not going to do that because I'm here to die. Yeah. (laughs) And we're supposed to, you know, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And like, I... I get it. It's hard. It sucks, right? Nobody wants to be persecuted. But I think also for me, the problem is that there are places in the world where people are genuinely persecuted and martyred and killed for their faith. Right. And so when we say things like the supposed war on Christmas or, um, you know, the fact that the government doesn't mandate prayer in school or whatever it is as persecution, I just... It's not just silly. It's, I think, deeply problematic to compare ourselves to people who are really being persecuted for their faiths in ways that lead to torture and death. Yeah. So let's put some like tangible stuff for COVID. Since we're talking about COVID, I can tell you how pastors have talked about persecution. And uh, Ryan already knows this, but he's going to react because it's just, it's horrible. It's like, in light of what he just said, with all the persecution in this world, why would you say this is persecution? So just to set the stage a little bit with stuff you probably already know as you're listening to this, but COVID-19 is a virus. It's a virus that we cannot detect by our eyes and we cannot detect by our symptoms most uh, some of the time. Right. It's It has asymptomatic transmission as well as symptomatic and when we were first in this covid transition into quarantine the number one response to that was who cares you can't violate my right to worship with my people with my congregation or pastors would say you cannot force me to forego word and sacrament ministry because that's how we talk about everything. And they would suggest that any action to do this is persecution by the state or the leftists or whatever. One of the challenges for me as a pastor watching this is that our church body skews older. Most of the people who are Lutherans in the way that we define ourselves as Lutherans 
are older. They're 60 and above, boomers and beyond. And we have pastors saying that we're going to gather come hell or high water when it's those very demographics that are most likely to catch it and most likely to spread it based off of their desires and their actions and their whatever than anyone else. And I just started to question in a very real way, where is your sense of responsibility? You're fighting for your rights so much that you don't really care about your people. And it's not that they don't care because, you know, you say that and it sounds really mean. But how are your actions matching your love for people who are in danger zones? Yeah, I think I think what it shows is a I think I'm just going to call it a priority error. <laughs> and yeah. What I mean by that is like because of the way this virus works and, you know, we've it's been around long enough now that we have a pretty good idea, right? Like yeah. Nate talked about, you can have it for 10 to 14 days before you know you do. Hmm. You can have it and not have symptoms and, you know, all of yeah. these things. And, and so like the priority is, well, I want to be in church and worship. And, you know, honestly, there's been so much fear wrapped up in this. I understand that. Like I do too. I haven't really loved internet church. You know, I I would much prefer to be in, in church with people and all for all that stuff. But the problem is that it seems like what many people were saying was because I need that right now, or think I need that or want that right now, it does not matter if it puts other people in danger, see? And I think that's what's hard about it too, because it'd be one thing if this virus worked in a way where, you know, people were only risking themselves by doing this kind of thing. Yes. In which case I might question their wisdom, but not their, right. <laughs> you know, because that I guess would be up to them. Problem is because of the way it works by gathering together, they're putting everybody at risk in there, anybody they see in their lives, you know? And so, Yes, I understand wanting to go to church. I do too, you know, but not to mention which the things we do at church are very good for spreading the virus, like singing and handshaking and communion and all of that stuff. It's just my needs and my desires and my beliefs even, I think I could say, have taken the priority over doing whatever we can to keep people safe. And of course, this isn't for everybody, but it, it, it seems to be in a large segment of the the kind the um, the groups that we're talking about yeah, here. You yeah. know, our groups and ones like them. Um, yeah, and one. And of so the- I think I think the persecution thing I think is probably a way to defer hmm. that responsibility. Yeah, right? whether it's conscious or not, I don't know. I, I don't know that it is for some. I think it's some, probably it not thought out. It might be conscious, right. but I don't think it's thought out. Not in most cases. Yeah. I think there are probably some really bad um, people who yeah. are manipulating people with it. But by and large, I think that's probably rare. And so we saw, so there's that one aspect. And what we saw in the south of our country, the southeast, is that churches were gathering. And then, of course, two weeks later, there are so many... Uh, new cases and new deaths and it just started to become this overwhelming sad narrative that pastors who were at one time condemning covid as being this like weird conspiracy to um right 
to persecute the church or whatever it might be, or Republicans or this, that, or the other, they end up dying and before they do recognize that they were foolish. And, And nobody wants that. I don't want that. I don't want pastors. I don't want anybody to die and then on their deathbed say, oh, I made such a terrible mistake. That just, that tears my heart out. I don't, Right. it's horrible. So this the next part of that is not only is it sad that there there are people that are dying that don't need to be dying, but when it comes to Christianity, like we're shooting ourselves in the foot. I've been saying this to people. Uh, everyone's watching us. They, mm-hmm. Everybody thinks that there's this persecution that they're trying to topple us, but I've noticed during COVID... And, <laughs> we don't need the help. <laughs> yeah, we don't need the help, certainly. But I've also uh, noticed that... A lot of people are waiting to hear what we're going to say, um, yeah. not in the cultural power way, but in the way of, I think, the way of Jesus, of guiding us and saying, this is how you rebuild, this is how you handle it. And what ends up happening, and what the biggest sad- sadness for me is, of course, the loss of human life. But the second saddest part of this for me is that we're not taking care of our communities and in our world in this frontier that i've noticed a lot more people care about their communities much more than they used to or at least in a different way than they used to and if a church decides to meet and a church decides to do things that put that community at risk then we've lost we've lost something there Especially since, and I think I'm just going to put it this way, the church was on, I mean, I'm not even sure if it was this, but on very thin ice when it came to this kind of thing in the broader society anyway, if it hasn't already sunk for some people, you know, I mean, you look at, um, you know, people see things like how the church has, you know, the culture wars, like we talked about, whether that, and, you know, gay marriage, abortion, whatever it Mm -hmm. is, and, and, um, and I think that people, many people, obviously not everyone, but many people already have this picture of our kinds of churches as retrograde throwback, um, you know, yeah. uh, hate, hate filled kind of places. Right. And then when we react to something like global pandemic, right, right. in the way that many have, it's just like, you can't blame them for throwing their hands up in the air and being like, not only are you all a bunch of crazy people, <laughs> but you're dangerous, right? Yeah. Like I was talking to someone about this who basically said he will never go to a church because, and this is somewhat hyperbolic, I suppose, but it fits as he's saying, because they sure seem a lot like domestic terrorist organizations to me. Hmm. Now, do I think that? No. But right. the comparison he was making was, right, is yeah. they're doing things that are going to get people killed. Yeah. You know, and and so what Nate said is right, is I think one of the, yes, obviously the worst part was people dying, you know, especially in the early parts of this, it sounded like they died pretty painfully in a lot of yeah. cases. And, um, and unnecessarily, the, that's unnecessarily. what makes it really sad. I mean, more than 100,000 people just in the U.S. have died. Yeah. And it didn't need to be that way, but that's a different discussion. Right. But anyway, um, but after that, I think it is really tragic of, I mean, talk about not just, yeah, like you said, shooting yourself in the foot. But like, I mean, we already had a tough, <laughs> tough road here <laughs> for getting people to 
however you want to put it, but to be the church, right, in a way yeah. that helps people. And and this, I think, this hasn't just set us back. I think it um, it's it's done tremendous damage yeah. because most people who aren't part of the church are not able or willing to differentiate between, well, you know, this church did things right, and you know, this denomination was okay. Like I. I don't think most people gen- generally see things that way if they're not involved in churches themselves, especially since a lot of the evangelical type churches get the most airtime and are the loudest and right. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. For me, it is discouraging um, after it's said. It is discouraging to see how we have reacted because we're holding on to freedom and our rights above everything else. And why it's so discouraging is because Jesus made it very clear that you're not to be concerned about yourself. He died so that we don't have to worry about ourselves anymore. Martin Luther, and this is part of the tradition part that I just really love, Martin Luther wrote this thing called The Freedom of the Christian, And what he said in that was that Jesus freed us so that we could be in service to the neighbor fully and always. Yep. And, and, you know, if we're going to live as Lutherans in my church body, but in Christianity in general, so focused on ourselves, then what in the world did Jesus do? Did he just give us a ticket to heaven? Is that the whole point of this? Otherwise, I just, it, it starts to well, get really should, frustrating and upsetting to me. That should probably be its own episode. Yeah, <laughs> it will be, I'm um, sure. But yeah, I mean, what did Jesus say? He said the entire law and the prophets can be summed up in two things, right? Yes. He said, love God. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? And we've been talking about how the problem here is that it's been selfish when, yeah, Jesus told us that in a way we need to flip that selfishness around and make it otherness. I don't even know how you, you know, I don't know. But the point is, yeah, right? Like the point is that we should be willing to be, whether it's persecuted or inconvenienced or, um, you know, things might be hard, they might be difficult, expensive, whatever it is, we should be willing to do that if that's what's necessary to help our neighbor. And, you know, everybody's our neighbor, not just the people we like and not just the people in close geographic proximity and not the people who look like us. Everybody is, you know. The the neighbor comes from uh, the Good Samaritan, right, in Luke. Right. Where the neighbor is the one who is uh, in the road, beaten up. That's who your neighbor is. Uh, the Samaritan is not your neighbor. The Samaritan's the one who does what everyone else, the, the uh, priest and the Levite, don't do. And Jesus does that to shame or to point out how selfish, let's say it like that because shame I don't like, but point out how selfish or self-centered uh, religious folk can be and the Samaritan is other-focused, and as a result, he is paying attention to the neighbor. The whole reason why Jesus came for this this time uh, before eternity, whatever that looks like. 
and what you know what might it have looked like and i'm not saying nobody has done this because people have christians have and are right but what might it have looked like if more of us had found ways to um you know help the doctors and nurses as they're on the front lines of this or you know i there's a someone mm-hmm. down the street from me and i don't know if they're christians or not but they set up this like big just basically if you need food take it in their front yard and you know, take and leave kind of thing. Yeah. And and what if, um, you know, like I think about the early Christians being the only ones who would care for like plague victims yeah. and stuff, <laughs> you know, and many of them died because of it. And, and then, you know, I see glimmers of hope when I hear about like, there's somebody at uh, my boyfriend's church who she sewed, I think 200 cloth masks because at the beginning, you know, we couldn't, when even doctors couldn't get PPE that they needed. Yeah. Um, they were even taking stuff like that because it was better than nothing, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, what if we, now I can't sew or let alone 200 masks, but what if we had all done something like that? Yeah. Um, what if we had been part of, uh, you know, like what if we'd really been central <laughs> to helping people make it through this very difficult time, right? Quarantine is terrifying. I was terrified for a while. Yeah. You know, it kind of time went on and I've kind of gotten more used to it and things have started changing now. But I'm just saying, but what if like we had really, really found ways to try and help people with their fear and anxiety instead of maybe adding to it? Yeah. And I I know that sounds harsh, but that, you know, or instead of trying to relieve our own anxiety. Yeah, that's a better way to put it, because I think. I think that's probably what was going on yeah. in most cases. You know? Well, I have a story. I, I, I'm never going to name people in my congregation. I'm going to be very careful about saying certain stories. But I do remember um, the very first time. And the reason I frame this according to relieving their own anxiety was because the very first weekend we closed. We closed uh, the weekend before St. Patrick's Day. Uh, and we were early in our area. Um, I don't know what that looks like in the future, according to judgment from others, but that's just what we did. Uh, and I had to really push. I didn't have to really push for that. Um, I was the one that was a little bit slower on that. And I started noticing some people doing it like, oh, shit, we got to do something. <laughs> yeah, um, right. But I remember we closed that down and there was somebody who didn't uh, normally come to church. You know, we have these people that come every once in a while. And that happened to be the weekend, one of the weekends they came. And I got uh, a phone message from that person uh, pretty much cursing me out and saying, how dare you do this? I needed this right now. I needed to know whatever it was, you know, a bunch of things about Jesus and how God's there and he's always protecting. And I say that not to judge this person because I don't. That person, I I was the same way. I needed to hear things that would help me at this time. And we were not equipped to be able to do uh, worship online at that time. So there was just no worship that weekend for us. Anyway, I say this because what the main concern was their needs. And I I say this in the selfish way, not as a pejorative once again, but just because we conceptualize things according to what we need, our rights as Christians first, that the natural response is when worship closes, I don't get what I need. And what I need right now is my anxiety to go down Mm because this is scary. And 
you know, it's also ignoring the fact that, and maybe this is its own episode someday too, but like the church building being closed does not in any way stop us from being right. a church. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not, it's never supposed to be about that. We can still be a community, you know, again, I know of churches that like some of them, like mine, they stream the service, you know, but like, I know some are doing, everybody calls in on like a zoom call and they can all see each yeah. other. And, and you know what I mean? Yeah. Is it preferable? No. Is it different? Yeah. Does it always work a hundred percent? Maybe not, but those people are still con- there's still ways to be linked and in community with people, even if it's not the way we would prefer it. And, you know, if somebody burned all our church buildings down tomorrow, we could still be the church. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you said, I loved your picture. What would it look like to do these wonderful things for other people? I'm going to ask a different question. It could be our closing question in terms of like, this will be the last thing we discuss, but what would it take for us to do that? What would it take for us? What do you think, Ryan? Hmm. You know, that's a tough one because if 105,000 dead people don't do it, I mean, honestly, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but it's it's been very, not just frustrating, it's been very discouraging for me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, been, that's kind of a tough question because if I'm honest, this has been very discouraging for me, very um, depressing at times because I, on the one hand, I think, you know, if 105,000 dead people, just, just in America doesn't change this, then I, I honestly, it feels like what in the world could. But then I remember that God can change things, even things like we're talking about now. And and I, what's really been helping me is I've been trying to just remind myself that God has placed me in a specific place with specific people at a specific time. And what I think we all need to do is examine that sphere that we're in and say, how can I help the people in that sphere with me right now? You can't maybe change the entire evangelical church or the U.S. government (laughs) or the world or the World Health Organization or whatever it is, but what can you do where you're at? You know, can you make masks for people? Can you call someone who doesn't get any, um, doesn't, can't see their friends or whatever it is, right? I think sometimes we get so paralyzed by the fact that the problem seems so big that we don't do anything. I mean, Think about what what would have happened if this, if the Good Samaritan walked by and said, "Well, you know, crime's a big problem in this area, and we're never going to solve it. So I guess I won't help the person." <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, you know, and that's I'm trying to be somewhat humorous, but I think the point is like you can't let that ideal in that almost platonic sense, which I don't believe in anyway. But I think that gets in the way of us. It gets paralyzing sometimes, and so yeah, I guess what I would answer your question with is like. The only thing I've been able to come with, come up with, and, and what's been helping me is what can I do right now in concrete ways? And in some ways, I'm fortunate because my job helps me do that in more concrete ways than many people have the opportunity to do. Uh-huh. But you don't have to be a chaplain to encourage people. You don't have to be a chaplain to set up a food pantry on your front yard or donate to a food bank or whatever it is, right? Right. Um, I think it just requires some creativity and some humility on all of our parts to say, you know what, this is not what I want. This is not how I want to spend that money. This is not like I want to go to whatever it is, but I'm willing to do something else because that's what other people need. Hmm. 
I mean, that's what Jesus did, right? He didn't. I don't think Je- I mean, Jesus didn't want to die on the right. cross. Yeah. Look he at his spent prayer time in, in the, the garden. garden. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, is there any other way we could do this? Is basically what he says. And he has that and then three he says, times. Right. And he's, you know, I mean, this was a tough time and who could blame him? But in the end, what does he say? But I'll do it anyway. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think, I think that's what I've been able to come up with on this of, you know, I've spent a lot of time judging people and, and trying to use shame, even though I didn't think of it that way. And you know what? That's not helpful. It doesn't work. Yeah. You can't argue people out of this kind of thing. I think instead what we need to work on is modeling the kind of behavior we want to see. Mm. So, so where does that leave you, Nate? I mean, what are, what are your thoughts as we close this up of like, what is it that's been helping you with it? Or what would you like to see? Or what might it look like? You know, when I first got here to my congregation that I, the congregation that I serve, I said something and I got a reaction that surprised me. I said, you know, people are basically just trying to do the best that they can. And I thought that was obvious. I thought, you know, yeah, most people are. Yeah, yeah. Generally, most people are doing, are they doing in the best ways? Of course not. I'm not doing in the best ways. And yeah, we hurt each other all the time. But generally, we're trying to do the best that we can. The response I got back, not just from one person or a handful, but from a good portion of people was, that's ridiculous. And I started to think to myself, why would that be the response, right? (laughs) If you've been listening to any of our episodes, you know that's what I'm going to always ask. Why? Why would that be the response? And I think it points to something that Ron and I have talked about a lot. Maybe this deserves its own episode. I'm sure it does. It speaks to a lack of, well, in the conversation that we've had, a lack of seeing other people first or seeing, uh, focusing on other people. It's a very selfish, a self-focused approach, but it, it speaks to the lack of a certain skill, and that skill is empathy. It, it just mm-hmm. speaks to a lack of being able to empathize with somebody else. And you know, that's a, that's a big claim. There's a lot to that, but that's kind of what I learned through my processing of it. And there, of course, there's more to it, but it just started to make me think like, how can we do things like Ryan is saying to do? And I think it has to start with maybe not an intellectual recognition, but certainly an emotional recognition that other people matter and that what they're going through is hard and they need help just as much as I do in my life. Maybe even more so, you know, you've got layers of privilege and other stuff that makes that more complicated. But the key thing is, is how can I see the world in such a way that other people matter at least as much as me, if not more. That's what Jesus challenges us, is to see other people mattering more, not in a value way, but in an empathetic way. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is of how to help people become more empathetic, because I think what you said is right. You can't argue people into believing this kind of stuff. But where my thoughts go are always around empathy and how can we create empathy and how can we... um, learn from that and 
and move, uh, I'm sorry, and act upon that empathy. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that comes from, and I don't know the secret to it either. (laughs) Although sometimes in, in my job, I get to work with people on, you know, that kind of thing. And indirect and gentle ways because that's how my job works, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it, it, it has a lot to do with listening to stories that aren't yours, you know? So like right now is a great example of, you know what, if you're a white person, then you need to be listening to the stories of, uh, black Americans experience as black Americans in regards to the police and the government and all of these things, because your experience hasn't been like that. And, you know, part of the, what I think gets in the way of empathy is we just don't have a frame of reference, right? We we don't even know what questions to ask. And I think the way that that changes is we need to start to listen. And I, you know, that's the starting point. It, It can't just stop there, but I think that's where it has to start. And then, once you have some stories that don't that aren't the same as yours, I think it's just a simple question of what would it be like for me if that happened to me? You'll never know what it's like for that other person because you're not them. Right. And if you're not a black American, you never will be. Right. So, however, however, can you say if what their experiences was happened to me, how would I feel? What would I do? What would I think? I mean, I think that's the kind of question where empathy starts of what would I do and say and feel if I was in that same situation? Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, I I just for me, for my voice, I want to end with where leaders can fit into this. I don't know who would ever listen to this podcast. I imagine that if it ever gets listened to, there might be some leaders that have an ability to do this. But there's a lot of conversation around what is the primary role of a leader. Where I'm coming down to it more and more is that a leader is primarily a facilitator of conversation. I think there's a lot of value in a leader being a beacon of hope or pointing to hope. Uh, to being a model of love and all the other things that people say leaders are supposed to be. But in this conversation around empathy and how do we break out of a self-centered point of view, a, a leader, a pastor can be a facilitator of conversation to listen to where people are. Uh, let's just use a, an example. Let's use, uh, we'll use the race conversation. I spent last week spending a lot of time just listening to voices I had never listened to before. And it was deeply humbling. It was hard, but it was necessary to help me start to break away my racist tendencies so that way I don't um, think that I've got the monopoly of what's going on. That might have sounded a little too rambly, but that's kind of where I am with that as a leader is to facilitate that conversation by letting people speak um, either through direct conversation or reading book, having book studies, having uh, Facebook posts and so forth that orient around those voices or um, other ways. Yeah. And I think, I think the last thing I want to say is that sometimes even though this is a complicated, very difficult thing, you know, in one sense, empathy is not 
easy, right? Selfishness is a lot easier than empathy, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, Almost natural. T- sure, sure. I mean, at the same time, though, I think we make it harder than it is in that, as Christians anyway, you know, if we're struggling to find compassion or empathy, or we don't know what it is, or we don't even know where to start, well, then could we ask God to help us? Yeah. Like, I know that seems like such a given, but I don't know that we do it all that often, you know? And yet we see over and over again, you know, Jesus doing things that, you know, I mean, why, I mean, gosh, the incarnation says that Jesus is like, not just like, but is one of us, Yeah, you know? And that when it talks about Jesus being tempted in all the ways that we were tempted, well, he knows what it's like. Right. It says that, or read the book Hebrews about all. It's just like, what I'm trying to say is, if we can't do it, and I'm, you know what? I don't think we can all of our own, you know? Right. I don't think that this is a natural human thing, at least not not all of it. But but I think that God can give it to us. God can change our hearts. God can help us um, find compassion. God can, you know, God can soften hard hearts, whatever you want to say. Like, I think sometimes we make it, it's so hard, so we don't try. Well, okay then ask God to help you because God consistently does things that are impossible. Right. (laughs) Right. And I'm not trying to be flipped there. I'm just trying to say simply that if you feel like this is impossible, okay, I hear you because maybe it is. But as Christians, you know, I'm not trying to preach at you here, but we also know that God helps and God does impossible things. Amen. Amen. The only thing I would add is that the impossible things get done together. If you think it's impossible to do it by yourself, guess what? (laughs) It is. Uh, There's no way any of us can do this by ourselves. We can do it together, and we can do it together because Christ is with us as we do it together. Right. Not much listening if you're in your room by yourself, unless you are, you know, talking to yourself, in which case that's the problem. Right. So. Yeah. So thanks for joining us for this episode. Uh, We kind of touched all over the place, but that's where we are with COVID right now. Uh, We have uh, maybe many, many more months to go with this uh, in terms of actually living out a pandemic. We certainly have many more months before any possibility of this kind of thing ending whether that's living out and about and doing things in an open state or otherwise. Uh, But I say that just because I know that our thoughts will probably change as we go. But that's the point of the frontier. The frontier isn't to establish a homestead. That's what pioneers do. We are frontiersmen and we are just, and women, and we are just searching for where we are right now. And so we want to open the conversation as much as possible. Uh, right now, the way that we can ask, uh, we can converse with you is through our email, which is frontierfaithpodcast at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to write us. Uh, let us know what you're thinking about COVID-19. Uh, we don't know when this is going to release. It's going to release pretty soon. Uh, and of course, we don't know who's going to listen to this. But we welcome any conversation, and we hope to uh, learn from you, because that's what Frontiers people do. They learn from each other, they learn the paths, they learn different ways to get to where they're going, and they explore together. 
So I want to encourage you to join us as we do that. Email us and look for the rest of our episodes. We're going to start releasing those regularly, and that will always be the case. We want to hear from you. So thank you for joining us. Remember that it's okay not to know what you believe, why you believe it, or even where you're going.